language and offensive themes. Listener discretion is advised. Boy, do I have a hankering for some bowl food. Brand new from Mike Shinoda. That's already over right here on the Callum Sutton Show. Welcome to the 30th of January 2024, episode 2111. Hope you're doing well. Starting off today with a throwback to uh, the royal wedding, of all things, as a news item kind of came across my feed earlier to do with some some odd reporting, to say the least, but for those who remember when uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle uh, were first doing their nuptials, it, it was a wonderful time. Every single radio station changed their names to something to do with it. The same as what happened when the baby George was born. Um, and, 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 you know, there was confetti everywhere and Britain was a different place back then. It was slightly less built up. But it was uh, it was a wonderful time for, for 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 those who believe in the royal family. And the BBC reported that the 600 guests joining Prince Harry and Meghan Markle for their wedding reception would be enjoying a selection of savoury and sweet canapes, champagne, of course, and bowl food. Sorry, what the fuck is bowl food? What is that? You can say finger food, that's fine. What the fuck is bowl food supposed to be? I I love this because it was... It really sh- showed us in a state of solidarity when the BBC were like, yes, bowl food. And everyone simultaneously, all the newspapers basically just bullied the BBC afterwards for reporting on the whole bowl food thing. Now, there is actually a explanation as to what bowl food is. You know, for those who may be thinking, ah, oh, it's just some just some stupid royalist term, you know, it's just... Um, I, I believe some people would probably put it as being slightly pompous as such. And I think a lot of people are about to agree with that. Uh, bowl food is larger than a canopy and around a quarter of the size of a main course. It is served in miniature or hand-sized bowls and comes ready to eat with a small fork. It really is a 6,000 BCE kind of headline. Bowl food was apparently selected for the royal wedding so that the reception could be a standing rather than a seated affair. Because apparently, um, you know, bowl food is also standing food. And I believe in the next royal wedding, they're going to be looking at doing some sitting food as well. It's such a stupid term. But I love it, because it's kind of just like... It came across my feed multiple times in the last couple of days. I don't know what the whole resurgence of bowl food is. But it came across my feed several times, and I was just like, this is the ultimate malicious compliance. Like, just naming things really maliciously, based on literally what they are, is a IQ 1000 move which in some ways I feel like could benefit the greater good. If we start walking around describing everything in really, really harshly compliant terms, then ultimately it's going to lead to a world where there's less Americanisms, uh, less brand judgment. Because if I refer to my... uh, you know, not so specific smartphone device as a not so specific smartphone device. 
maybe the people who say sorry i've got to go pick up my iphone will finally disappear from the world i'm I'm just saying i'm just saying that might be a nice little reality where we don't have to hear shit with a brand name appended as if it's some sort of like status symbol it it, i'm not saying it irks me i'm more just saying that it irks me we're going to double up on this whole idiotic uh, British headline series that we've kind of just accidentally got ourselves into here. Because, look, darling, it's the Stevenage Fridge Runner. He's, he's, he's a real person, and it's a real headline. Uh, a marathon trainee said police nearly mistook him for a thief after they saw him running with a fridge on his back. Daniel Fairbrother was stopped by officers in Stevenage while practicing for the London Marathon. He said the officers quickly realised he was not stealing anything and it ended up with them shaking my hand. A Hertfordshire Constability spokesman said, we would like to wish Daniel all the best with training for the marathon. This is the type of shit that we get up to. It's like um, what we used to have in Cambridge with the, the bin playing guitar man who would literally just station himself outside of, I think it was King's College. But he moved around from time to time, but it was mostly just outside of the um, outside of the market square. He'd just get like a council bin, which he he brought from somewhere. <laughs> clearly, hey, clearly the guy had a good retailer. If he if they were able to get the uh, exact specific council bin for him, he would get a bin, and he would just station himself outside of King's College, Jesus College whichever one he fancied that day and just sit there playing guitar inside the bin. You just see the neck of the guitar sticking out and his little hand doing the ding, ding, dingly things. And we also had, um, Oh, we had, we had when Batman came to Cambridge, some guy literally just like zooming through the streets on a, on a, it's not a Batmobile, but the bike thing that he has. And then there was the, um, the Slinkies having sex outside of a phone booth. That was weird. That was a weird couple of days. And I still haven't quite internalised what exactly was going on there. But it was literally just like two people in these gigantic Slinkies just going at it. Not real, not real penetration or anything, but, you know, just dry humping each other in Slinkies, in the middle of Cambridge. It really is the birthplace of anything strange and weird and wonderful. It's not something I see very often down here in London. I don't know why. I feel like there needs to be more action. Where is the flamboyancy in the London scene? It's probably just disguised, to be fair. It's probably so normal that nobody really notices anything. But I never really see, like, anything proper stand out. It'd be nice. It would take away from the usual doom and gloom of British life. Like, you, you're not going to be noticing um, as much confrontation if there's an equal amount of stupidity just, like, lurking on every street corner. Yeah, I guess it's also kind of difficult because you also need to make sure at the same time that you don't get misconstrued as something else. Like... I, I can imagine there are a lot of acts that you could do which would potentially get you arrested under suspicion of other things. 
either being a creep pervert or, or potentially being involved in some sort of like foreigner swindling scheme, which is something we don't really have over here. Um, so, you know, the, the whole nature of it would be quite stand out. But it'd be interesting to see. Because obviously you go down to the coast and you see a lot of it. Mostly mostly the same same old stuff. There's not really a whole lot of, you know, you're not going to get surprised going down there. But there are, you know, active street performers doing the usual stuff. The floating man and all of that sort of thing. Just Just regular people painting themselves in gold glitter and... But what we had in Cambridge, in the specific timescale, because it stopped as of late, like, this is very much a pre-pandemic thing. It was just like, it would pop up for three days or so and then disappear completely. Because we had plenty of other stuff. We had the Anonymous Circle, where the hacker group Anonymous, or supposed members of the hacker group Anonymous, just stood outside with crap tons of computer monitors. I still don't know where the hell they got power for those things. It's very well organised. They literally just set up like this gigantic public exhibition where they stood around all day with monitors and didn't really do a whole lot. I can't remember what the actual point of it was because it wasn't. there wasn't really much going on at the time other than Ed Snowden. But nobody was really like, you know, Anonymous wasn't really involved in that as such. It was like, yeah, we got we got to get him free somehow, and bring back liberty to the internet. But Anonymous was on sign else entirely at the time. I think they were trying to hack into like allied um, allied systems to see what potentially was going on on the other side of our internal operations. Anonymous has a great way of making, of getting themselves in trouble, but never actually getting themselves in trouble. It's brilliant. I love the whole idea of you can just be anonymous. You can just, you know, amass so many people that it essentially just smoke screens everything that you do. It's it's a great way to get shit done. But as of late, I can't really think of much that we would need to have it for. Although there has been some stuff. So Google most recently kind of just creeping on people, which isn't too surprising, but it was incognito because the messages on the incognito tabs have changed recently. Like if you go and you open one, um, it used to say very vague, um, private browsing will protect your search history. Nothing will be logged, but your traffic may be visible to your ISP or system administrator. Nowadays, out of nowhere, I don't know if I'm on the latest version of Chrome or not. But let me try it. because I can't remember exactly what it says. Nowadays, it says, it doesn't say the new thing on mine, but it says something along the lines of Google may also track your activity. And it was because, as it turns out, this entire time they've actually been collecting information from incognito users. People who thought that they were, you know, protected. They've been actively saving information. Now, obviously, there's people who use it for slightly less nefarious uses, like buying their wife a wedding ring, as the famous advert suggests. Um, Nobody's using it for anything hardcore, I don't think. 
it'd be pretty stupid if you went and just trusted Google to be outright about what their what their entire mission statement is. But it definitely for the middle group, for those who are using it for you know their second personality or for more chicka chicka bow wow times, that is very concerning. That they've kind of just been snooping in the entire time. Apple as well has also been recently under fire, ever so slightly, not as much, um, but for very simple changes to the App Store, which means that they don't necessarily entirely need to tell you if the UK government is directly downloading data that you give an app. And there was another thing recently where, because of certain uh, acts that the UK law has in place that kind of technology companies have already agreed to um, means that they can bring an update out and the UK government can just like say no to it and they won't be able to tell users that they've said no to it. So, you know, if there was a privacy update and the government didn't agree with it, they could just be like, we don't agree with this, so don't do it. And they'd have no choice. They They just have to be like, okay, cool. That update's not coming out then. And to a certain extent, nobody would ever know about it because it's closed source. So it's not like anybody would see the first couple of interventions within writing that new update, that new code. Nobody would know about what it contained until the company publicly brought it out, which to a certain extent, they need the government's permission to do so because of the whole, you know, cyber security aspect of things. The government basically says, well, we also need to protect the country. So we need to know what permissions we have to other people's data. And we also need to know, you know, if there's something that's going to seriously cripple our ability to be able to snoop into conversations, we need to know that. And there might be a reason for us to oppose any upcoming updates. To a certain extent, it's creepy. It makes sense. It doesn't make sense. That's the only problem here is I can't entirely disagree with it because we have seen a inrush of potential problems due to the amount of increased security these days due to apps which allow you complete anonymity with mass communication which could eventually become tools for terrorists and so it does make complete sense that the UK government would need to protect against things like that but then equally there's going to be people who say well I want my privacy just as a regular person as such. I don't really want the government being able to either snoop into conversations or be able to have trigger words, which I might trigger off saying regular stuff that would then give them access to my data. It, it's it's swings and roundabouts, really. It's all swings and roundabouts. I'd love to know what you think about it. We talked about it multiple times on the show. So it's like, this isn't a new topic whatsoever. I've kind of just accidentally got into a bit of a rant here. <laughs> Going back to the old stuff. This isn't exactly new gold, let's just say that much. I swear the show was more more stable when we were using iTunes as a playout system. Those are fun times. I, I remember... God, how long ago was that? Ages ago. Back when I recorded this show with a... I think it was an iMac G4. Beautiful device. Um, known famously for the advert that had the Black Eyed Peas, uh, Will I Am, kind of just making faces to this iMac G4 in a shop window 
And it was kind of like replicating the facial moves. And it was literally like I was underneath a, um, I was in a stair cupboard type situation. I was under the stairs. It's very much a Harry Potter style story presenting this show for several years with my little two channel auto mixer and, and the iMac G4. Very humble beginnings, to put it simply. And, and now we're here. Uh, facing some of the same software issues that we faced in years gone past. Um, but, you know, mo- most other people just kind of, you know, edit out parts like that. I choose to keep them in, uh, mainly because I make jokes about them while it's happening, so that it makes it very difficult to edit them out. But also because we're very much about integrity on this show. If we can get away with never editing ev- anything ever, we'll go for that. That's exactly how the Witching Hour works. We record. We're very drunk. We say a lot of stuff, and then it's kind of just vent out in the open. And we can't do anything about it. It's already out there. So we then just, you know, respond the way that we need to respond to whatever response we get from our our potentially very sharp words. But hey, maybe uh, maybe if companies didn't do really immoral shit... Maybe they wouldn't be featured on the show. Who knows? Uh, Elon Musk, the billionaire founder of neurotechnology company Neuralink, has said that the first human, the first human received an implant from the brain chip startup and is recovering well. The first human ever to be born, uh, you know, regardless of what your spiritual um, inclination is. Whether he be Adam, whether he be Jesus of Nazareth, whether he be Bill, who just started the world by himself. Bill's story is quite a, quite a strong one. He, he walked six hours to school every morning. Uh, yeah, they've put the Neuralink into their very first human... Um, what would you call it? It's not really a donor body, is it? I guess it is technically a donor body. It's going to get very weird because we're going to start using technology terms on humans in, in, in very invasive ways when this stuff becomes a lot more common. And we are going to be saying shit like donor body, daughter board, all of that sort of stuff in, in relation to humans. I'm not looking forward to that. It's going to be weird. The surgery is not a surprise. The US Food and Drug Administration had given the company clearance in September to carry out the first trial of its implant on humans. Initial results show promising neuron spike detection, Musk said on a post uh, on X on Monday. We now know what it's called. It's called a post on X, not a tweet on X. A day after the chip was implanted, spikes are activity by neurons, which the National Institute of Health describes as cells that use electrical and chemical signals to send information around the brain and to the body. Musk did not provide further details. In follow-up tweets sent in between arguing about video games and bantering with far-right influencers, the businessman said the first Neuralink product was called telepathy. It enables control of your phone or computer, and through them, almost any device just by thinking, he wrote. Initial users will be those who have lost the use of their limbs. Imagine if Stephen Hawking could communicate faster than the speed of than a speed typist of or auctioneer that is the goal weird weird metaphor there elon musk thanks for that um also a bit weird talking about 
Stephen Hawking in in this context, don't you think? But you know, it's not like they had the entire computer system custom developed for Stephen Hawking, which didn't require any invasive surgery. Because you know, it's concerning. Because eventually, this is going to become like a mass a mass use thing. God knows how many years it's going to be from now. But eventually become a mass use thing. And then we've got to think about the complications of what it may cause. Because it is literally Im- implanting things into the human brain. And we've got to consider things like rejection, potentially, from tissues around it. And what happens when it goes horrendously wrong, like electrically, for example. I know people who are very... Not scared as such of Elon Musk, but definitely very weary of the type of shit that he's up to. And for very good reason. In 2017, Musk suggested Neuralink's first product would be on the market in about four years. Nearly. So close. So very close. Just, you know, three years off. However, Tuesday News was a significant milestone towards that goal. For the brain-computer interface community, we must place this news in the context that while there are many companies working on exciting products, there are only a few other companies who have implanted their devices in humans, so Neuralink has joined a rather small group. I expect Neuralink will want to give the participant time to recover before they start training their system with the participant. We know Elon Musk is very adept at generating publicity for his company, so we may expect announcements as soon as they begin testing. That's coming from uh, King's College, one of the professors over there who's looked into the technology itself. And it's one of those things where it is, ironically, it's very, very, like, simple. Electronically, it's very simple. It's mostly the actual method of how it's going to end up working. Because you have the technologies already there to be able to do things like, for example, literally read human brainwaves, because they are ultimately just regular radiation. But it's how does a computer actually interpret that information and use it in a meaningful way, and how are you going to create the boundaries for that to exist in? Because there's going to be things like spikes, which could or could not be beneficial to the, the the device could potentially end up being harmful in some ways if some data is misinterpreted and the device doesn't know that it's misinterpreting something that would eventually lead to you know at best missed commands but you know depending on how far this technology is brought forwards for certain tasks if it's like you know motor control of some kind that could eventually end up being, yeah, skeevy at best, potentially dangerous. So it's going to be interesting to see, like, how this all progresses. At the same time, I'm very aware that there are people who are like, Jesus Christ, this guy's, this guy's a freak. This guy's dangerous. And to a certain extent, I, I kind of have to agree with them. Especially when you consider that Musk himself has a lot of ideas, but generally fails at a lot of them. Like, the Tesla's been mostly successful, but the amount of companies that he's had that have completely tanked, because he doesn't really spend much time actually thinking about what he's doing with those companies. He kind of just comes up with ideas, sets about 
creating them and then kind of a lot of the time abandons them or makes business moves that in the long term cause the company to tank. But it's it's very much like a monitoring thing. He'll start them off, he'll let them kind of live by themselves for a little bit, and in about nine out of ten cases, they end up going the wrong direction because you need people to be there to observe, to actually, you know, to give instruction, to come up with method method methodology. It it's like when he fired his assistant, basically saying something along the lines of, like, if I can do your job for four weeks or whatever, then I have no use for you. He's very calloused, very cold in that way. It's the same as that. Like, he got rid of her because of this whole, like, I think he did a specific task that she does for four weeks and then found that he didn't really need to have her. Like, it made no difference to his overall company. But it's one of those things where it's like, well, people can also have a lot of values that you don't end up seeing or don't realise that they're doing in the background, but actually come to benefit the company later on. Um, I'm, I'm sure, you know, the first people to fuck around with microchips and all of that sort of stuff maybe didn't realise that they'd need programmers later on because it was very much, right, well, this transistor does this, it's turning a signal off and on over there, and we take that in, and it makes a light go on and off, and that's all we need. And it would only be until much later when they realised how big things became that they would eventually need to come up with a language that could be interpreted by those systems that made it easier to just write a programme and have it run that, rather than basically running the writing the programme directly into electronic schematics, configurations... So it's one of those things to think about, but yeah. To 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 put it simply, I I I don't think I'm gonna get one of these Neuralink things in my mind anytime soon. Matey noise and in my mind right here on the Callum Sutton show. Feel like I was slightly losing my place there in the uh, the Elon Musk talk. It's very difficult because it's like the people who do know about him spend like a lot of time looking into him because there's so many crevices in his career and in his like overall I feel like in the last couple of years he's basically done a million things and it's very hard to kind of connect the dots ridiculously busy but then who knows how much effort goes into each one of those little dots as forementioned um, unemployed people having to turn down jobs because they cannot afford associated costs such as clothes and transport, a Prince's Trust study has told. The research found that the rising cost of living for people was threatening the aspirations of an entire generation. I can more or less um, definitely agree with that. I, I feel like it's... Because um, I've seen it for years. I'm not I'm not talking about my current situation. I'm talking about... The last, God knows how long years of my life, um, all, all the way down to working at Tesco as a stock controller. Um, yeah, you just, there's not much treatment these days. People just aren't nice to each other. I think that's as simple as that really is. People kind of just expect everyone else to get on well, regardless of the fact that maybe they're not exactly supported in any way. 
The Trust's annual NatWest Youth Index 2024, which will launch on Monday, found that a third of those aged 16 to 25 said that they could not afford to get the qualifications they needed for the job they wanted. One in ten had to turn down a job because of the costs. It is the first time that the index, which has been monitoring the welfare of young people in the UK since 2009, has looked at how young people are coping with increased prices. The Trust said that the findings revealed a crippling impact on education and employment, as well as day-to-day living. Almost a fifth of the 2,239 young people who took part in the YouGov survey said they planned to finish their education early so that they could start earning money. About 5% admitted missing school or work in the past 12 months because they could not afford transport, rising to almost 1 in 10 of those from poorer backgrounds. More than two-fifths said about worrying said worrying about money had made them unable to concentrate at school, which is a very valid and and people are going to say, mostly older generations are going to say, ah, snowflakes, all of this shit. We used to walk 16 million miles to plant a fucking brick in the ground or some shit. We hear that a lot. All the fucking time. But realistically, no, never happened. I've, I've spoken to plenty of people a lot older than me who who worked throughout the industrial era, including my grandfather, who, you know, had his car paid for him, had his transport paid for him, because that was expected very much in the Industrial Revolution, unless you were, like, two minutes down the road. Everything was paid for you. Everything was there, you know? It was just basic goodwill. And, and these days, I think that culture has very much just disappeared completely. Nowadays, companies are like, well, we're not going to care for you if you have to, you know travel 15 million miles away from your regular base location you can go fuck yourselves as far as we're aware go ahead go do it we'll watch and it's ridiculous because it's like what are you guys doing to help your employers your employees basically nothing i'm gonna get riled up talking about this i apologize in advance um Jonathan Townsend, the UK's chief executive of the Prince's Trust, said this year's youth index highlights the stark consequences that the cost of living crisis is having on young people's education, employment and well-being, threatening the aspirations of an entire generation. It reveals its impacts are having the worst effect on those people who face the most disadvantage with those from the poorer backgrounds or who are unemployed finding financial pressures are crippling their ability to pursue new job opportunities or secure the skills and qualifications to chase their career ambitions. I, I, I just think we need to find a better way of doing things. And you can say that about a lot of things, but ultimately I think society is hinging on career development on, on basic, you know, job availability and to a certain extent, job applicability is something that doesn't really get talked about much. Job applicability being literally, can you afford to even do the job in the first place? Is it going to take so much out of your bank account for anything that you do earn just becomes a, a um, what would you call it? A ricochet? I don't know. Not very good with English. Will that just become a tragic part of the entire story because people go and they get jobs and end up having outgoing so fucking large because their employers will basically just pick up anyone from anywhere in the country won't even consider how applicable the job is actually to the employee they'll be like well you're 15 million miles away let's get you and then you know not support them with the fact that you know maybe the whole 
traveling that far will eventually add up to completely negating what they actually get out of that job. And to add to that, there is also, you know, job-related expenses that are often overlooked. Simple lifestyle changes. If I'm, you know, going off to a job that is nowhere near to my house and and I don't have access to the regular things that I would have in my house, obviously it's going to become a lot more expensive. Because if I'm at home, I can just, you know, cook something on the stove. Put some frozen food in the uh, in the air fryer. Simple things like this. I have a fridge, I have a freezer. I have basic wash facilities that I basically develop to what I need them to be. You know, I go shopping. I buy things to a certain extent in bulk because it negates a large amount of cost, and because it's going to get used anyway. So I have to do less regular trips to the supermarket to do my regular everyday living. Now, if I'm out somewhere else, that is obviously not going to happen. If I'm like away for several days, I'm going to have to look towards more expensive options. Takeaway restaurants, that sort of thing. Meal deals, you know, that adds a job-related expense that there's no statute in law to support anybody with stuff like that. And there's no statutes in law to support people with transport, for example. Because you've you've got, you know, certain schemes. Yeah, you've got your under-16 bus pass travels. You've got your over-80 rail cards, all of that sort of stuff. But there's not much to help simple, regular people who may need a bit of help with... The ever-expanding cost of public transport, the ever-expanding cost of petrol, of actually owning a motor vehicle, all of these kinds of things that you would think would kind of just be a statute onto its own. You know, growing up, I never saw somebody struggling to buy a car. Nowadays, that's very much a reality. But you go back to the early 2000s, and that was just something that everyone owned. You know, and if you didn't, it's either because you didn't want to or you were kind of just making your way up to that point. Nowadays, that's less applicable. There's people who just genuinely can't like even with financial keepsake, they still wouldn't be able to. They can sit there and save as long as they want because of the constant outgoing costs of everything else It is a point that they will never get to. And I just think it takes the piss if i'm being honest and i'm gonna stop getting riled up now <laughs> playing now on the Callum sun show something that i think we all need novocaine by the unlikely candidates hey 25 pounds on facebook marketplace right now you can get a sign one of those like decorative home signs that says shit shag but good cuddle i i just hate that i already know what kind of house that comes from. Like, that's that's not young adults fucking around. I know full well what fucking house that com- kind of thing comes from. Oh, God. It is, it is you know, it's, it's exactly what you think. The thing is, I can't say it out loud, but you already know. Just just through association, you already know. Um, But, you know, that just, that just shows the state of our society, specifically. 
I, I recently found out that Trainline's uh, TikTok account has has this influencer as such who just happened to be somebody who I went to school with and, and used to go around beating up uh, less fortunate students. Let's just put it that way. And now she's seen as like the face of many brands. It's a sad world when you see shit like that. Because she's genuinely still in real life, hasn't changed one bit. Still a massive piece of work. Uh, but it's kind of like one of those things where you just kind of like sit there and go, yeah, sure, okay. Everyone else is kind of like, you know, turning an eye to this, just being okay with it as such. But it shows that there's a very decent lack of uh, background research from Trainline. And if they knew, because there's newspaper articles about her, like really, really bad newspaper articles about her. And if they actually spent like five minutes to actually research her name, they would know exactly the type of shit that she used to get up to. And a lot of it's like really fucking bad. Anyway, I thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Callum Sutton Show. Love you, as always. And I'm going to leave you on this one. FKJ and Santana. This is Greener on The Callum Sutton Show.